hasn't been an easy one for her, so gives um, me gives me a connection to this day, you know, that she's still walking. And as I was doing some research for this talk, um, I found a statistic that in each, on average, over our lifetimes, um, take about 8,000 to 10,000 steps a day, which means that we cover about 1,600 miles a year. And so, my mom's walked <laughs> 154,000 miles on this planet. And that's like five times around this earth. So, it's a long journey. And just walking is an accomplishment. And maybe you get the thread of my topic tonight. Because the only thing I'm going to be talking about is walking meditation. It's just about walking the whole talk. And really, I want to try to mm, infuse the same energy and inspiration and ardor that we have for our sitting practice into something that's not separate from it. And it really, you know, it plays off of Jack's uh, story around that woman who sent the note that she hated walking meditation. And, you know, to varying degrees, um, we may all experience some aversion or disconnect sometimes from, from that practice. And so often, even it can be subtle, like instead of, um, doing the walking meditation, we actually take a walk. And there's a subtle difference. Because there's an object or a destination to that, that, that um, activity. Often we'll do walking to escape the vicissitudes of our sitting practice. You know, that, that it's an experience of a slight aversion. And sometimes there's, there's a feeling of, I'm not getting anything from this. You know, what is it? It's, it's relatively mechanical. It's relatively repetitive. And our culture actually doesn't support um, walking as a sexy activity. So this is, this is actually from the New York Times. <laughs> How sluggish locomotion is compared with the speed at which the mind absorbs new images and information. The brain strains at the body's tether, seething, seeds for new scenery, new stimulation, and bridles at the slow feet below. Look at that tree with such a lovely orange, with such lovely orange leaves, how pretty it is. A minute later, the same tree, <laughs> the same leaves. Walking is adding with an abacus. It's space journey with on a donkey. <laughs> this, is, this, is, you know, this is our cultural um, experience of walking, but it's that it's not it's, it's not that glorious. But it's a great time to go to the bathroom when the when the bell rings and the walking meditation starts. Or it's a great time to get tea. <laughs> and that snack, and all of a sudden you only have 25 minutes left for walking. So, um, and then there's that period after lunch, which somehow turns from a walking period, which is what's on the schedule, <laughs> into nap meditation. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us, actually, and I've gone through this, I've gone through all of that, and I've also gone through the exact opposite of getting so into walking meditation that I'm going to be the slowest, most mindful person walking. And, you know, I'm going to show everybody how mindful 
I can be on this issue. So this is a story from Ajahn Lee Damodaro's autobiography. He's one of the highly realized Thai masters of the last century. One night when the moon was bright, I made an agreement with one of the other monks that we'd go without sleep and do sitting and walking meditation. I told my friend, let's see who's better at doing sitting and walking meditation. <laughs> so we agreed. When I do walking meditation, you'll do sitting meditation. When I do sitting meditation, you'll do walking meditation. Let's see who last, can last the longest. <laughs> when it came to my turn to do walking meditation, my friend went to sit in a hut next to the path that I was walking. Not too long afterwards, I heard a loud thud <laughs> coming from inside the hut. So I stopped, looked, and opened the window and peeked in. Sure enough, there he was, lying on his back with his folded legs sticking up in the air. He had been sitting in full bows, got sleepy, and simply falling backwards asleep. I was practically dropping off to sleep myself, but had kept going out of a simple desire to win. <laughs> I felt embarrassed for my friend's sake. But, I thought, I hate to be in his place. <laughs> And at the same time, I was pleased I won. <laughs> All of these things serve to teach me a lesson. This is what happens to people who aren't true in what they do. Meaning, when, when the motivation is not skillful. But I love that story. Because even in the developmental process of these highly realized masters, they too went through this comparing and judging mind. And then they woke up. They realized that that is not the path of time. And it just makes this practice so much more accessible to me and so much more human and real. So in the Majjhima, the Buddha said, furthermore, when walking, the monastic discerns, I am walking. When standing, they discern, I am standing. When sitting, they discern, I am sitting. When lying down, they discern, I am lying down. Or however the body is disposed, that is how they discern it. And as they remain thus heedful, ardent and resolute. Any memories and resolves related to the household life are abandoned. <coughs> and with their abandoning, their mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. This is how a monastic develops mindfulness immersed in the body. Buddha did not teach anything extraneous or unnecessary, only that which led to freedom. And what's so interesting to me in this passage is that he put walking practice first. I don't know what that, that indicates, but it, you know, it, it, it is a, um, it certainly is an indication that he is offering walking practice as a path towards these precious moments of freedom. He also said that, and many of you have heard this phrase, that living 24 hours with mindfulness, moment to moment, is more precious than living 100 years without it, which is what many people do, <coughs> many humans do. So as we become more and more mindful, we begin to see how precious each moment of our life is. Because really, we take so much of this amazing existence for granted. The breath. How often do you feel or think about the breath? How often do you notice the breath outside of your meditation practice? When you're actually living your life. Until there's an illness or a respiratory condition, 
until there's an impairment, and then you you have that lived experience of how precious this energy of breath gives you the energy of life. How often do we actually consider how precious it is to ambulate in this in this on this earth? The ability to move through space and go where we need to go. We take so much of our life for granted, and so mindfulness can be a way of making the invisible visible. It invites us to live the full range of our life, not just those aspects that we want or that we like, but the entire range of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. As, as, as that was mentioned in the passage, walking meditation is interwoven into this foundation of mindfulness of the body. What is this body? And what is this body that moves, that walks? This body is so complex. Each foot, some of you who are in the medical profession know this, each foot contains 26 bones. That means that in both feet, you have a quarter of the bones in your body with something like 33 joints and 107 ligaments and, and tendons and then all the blood vessels and nerves. And, and every time you take a step, you put um, uh, 150% of your weight because of the force on each foot. That's pretty incredible. And as I said, you know, in the opening, we walk a lot. We walk at least 1,600 miles a year. How many moments are we actually aware? Because in the unawareness, in a way, we're not actually living the life that's being lived. About three years ago, um, Stephen and I, my husband and I, went through a really difficult period because um, uh, it, we didn't know it in the beginning, but um, he had degenerative uh, arthritis in his right hip that, that really slowly began to um, affect his ambulation, his ability to walk. And you know, at first, it was just a soreness and a pain. He had been a runner for. 15 years, and, and by last spring, the pain was intermittently really severe that prevented a lot of activity. By the summer, um, there were many things we had to cancel vacation. And by August, when we tried to go on a trip, we ended up using a wheelchair. And it was that slow progress that, that, that you know, I don't know, um, because it wasn't my direct experience, but my experience was that it was a helpless, I felt helpless. I couldn't do anything but watch the change and um, the lack of ability to walk through the world. And so it became really clear that um, uh, he needed a hip replacement. And the good news is, is that he went through that process. And, and there are certain things that the medical profession has been able to perfect. And that is one of them, at least in our case. And so uh, it's amazing now, only three or four months later, um, that his baseline is really back to where it was three years ago. But the baseline of our consciousness is much higher. We appreciate every walk we take. And um, the day that this retreat started, um, I was about to leave the house uh, in the afternoon. And, and in the morning, I was starting to pack. And, you know, I was already transitioning into the space. And he asked me, do you want to go for a walk? And I immediately said yes. 
<coughs> because I appreciate the fact that we can do that. Because I know what it's like not to. One of the ways we tend to not value the preciousness of this life <coughs> is we really change the, the moment. Instead of leaving it for what it is, we push it away because we don't like it, or we cling to it because we want more of it. And for those moments that we don't notice, that, 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 are, that we're indifferent to or bored of, the mindfulness just slips off. We're just not aware. And all of that is a manipulation of our direct experience. It's not beating the moment exactly for what it is. And it can get really exhausting. So we can create our experience by wanting the walking meditation to be a certain way. That we want it to be um, more interesting. Or um, I hope that no one is on own hill so that I have it all to myself <laughs> when I walk away. Or what, can, what else can I do besides walking during the walking period? <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're living a thought as opposed to a life. Thought becomes our reality. Not the content of our thought. I'm not talking about magical thinking. I'm talking about the activity of thinking becomes our life, as opposed to the life that's being lived. So the invitation is to go beyond what we think we know of our lives and get out of the way and just to watch how our life is being lived. As Carol described last, uh, two nights ago, what is it like simply to walk through your life as it's unfolded without needing it to be any way other than it is? Anything, not any different than how it has come to be. Han writes about his walking practice. If we're really engaged in mindfulness while walking, then we will consider the act of each step we take as infinite wonder. And a joy will open in our hearts like a flower, enabling us to enter the world of reality. I like to walk alone on country paths, rice fields, and wild grasses on both sides, putting each foot down on the earth in mindfulness knowing that I walk on this wondrous earth. In such moments, existence is a miraculous and mysterious reality. People usually consider walking on water or in thin air a miracle, but I think the real miracle is not to walk either on water or thin air, but on the earth itself. Every day... support for your walking practice. It's really like us coming together in this retreat. Can you ever imagine doing this schedule at home by yourself? Think about it. You know, walking for five hours a day, sitting for six hours a day. Do you have that kind of stamina? And yet when you get in a community, it becomes so much easier. Not to say that it's easy, but it becomes easier. There is support, even in the non-verbal communication of our community. And so, find support in, with each other. Instead of, because I've done this, I've looked for a walking meditation path away from everybody else. Or I get incredibly pissed off when someone takes my meditation path. <laughs> you know how cyclists draft? You know how they, they draft behind each other? You can do that in practice too. 
And there's a story about that. So Ajahn Mun is another, he's actually, uh, he's, he's one of the people that reinvigorated the forest tradition in the early 1900s. He, he was dwelling in northern Thailand and the hill tribes in the area knew nothing about meditation or meditation monks. However, the hill tribe people were very inquisitive and when they saw Ajahn Mun walking up and down his path, they followed him in a line. He turned around at the end of the path and the whole village was standing there. <laughs> they had noticed him walking back and forth with his eyes cast down and had assumed he was searching for something. They inquired, what are you looking for, venerable sir? He skillfully replied, I am looking for Buddha, the heart of the Buddha. You can help me by finding it, by walking up and down your own paths looking for the Buddha. With this simple and beautiful instruction, many of those villagers began meditating. And Ajahn Man said that they obtained wonderful results. At, you know, on a, on a different level at East Bay Meditation Center in downtown Oakland in California, we also have this experience because we're not in a, you know, rural setting like this. We are right in the middle of Broadway and 22nd Street, in the middle of traffic, in the middle of a business district. And so what is beautiful to watch is during our day-longs, I actually encourage people to do walking meditation, not in the parking lot and back, but on the sidewalks, in the street. And so you have, you have people doing walking meditation. Meanwhile, life is going by. And what's really interesting is how life slows down in that block between 21st and 22nd Street. It's like the movie of Oakland goes, goes life, 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 slow, life, 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 life. <laughs> Your practice affects everyone around you. And so this is how you can support each other in the walking practice itself. The Buddha talked about five benefits of walking meditation. It develops physical endurance. It improves effort, which is part of the Eightfold Path. I hope to get to that. It's, it, it produces positive and good things for your body and your health, your overall, oh, your overall health. Um, is good for your digestion. So one of the, one of the um, traditions in, in, um, when I was practicing in Burma was that they suggested that you take a walking meditation of 50 steps, at least 50 steps after every meal. So just notice that walking meditation after lunch. And last, which is probably really also very beneficial, is that the concentration one from walking meditation stays with you for a long time. And un the benefit underlying all of these benefits are really the moments of freedom. And so, I, this is why I want to talk about walking meditation through the lens of the Eightfold Path. Because that is the path to freedom. So, for those of you who are relatively new, just to review the Four Noble Truths, what's the first Noble Truth? That there is suffering. What's the second Noble Truth? That there's a cause of suffering and the cause of suffering is? Craving. And the third Noble Truth? is that there's a sensation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. And I'm going to start with the meditation factors because that's what we're immersed in right now. So wise effort. Walking takes energy. And it also can both infuse or, or energize 
as well as moderate or relax. So for example, when there's sleepiness in your, in, in your experience, whether it's in the sitting practice or overall, you can use the walking practice to brighten the mind and also the energy in the body. You can, you can use the walking practice by, by altering the speed to build energy so that in your sitting practice you actually have that brightness. When there's too much restlessness, when there's too much energy, you can also use the, the walking practice to discharge that. So I remember in uh, one retreat, there was one practitioner that, that just could not stay still. You know, it's like the person sitting behind you on the desk and, his, and, the, and the leg was, is, is jiggling against, against you. And, and uh, you could feel that energy in the room. And so one of the invitations for them was instead of the traditional 19 or 20 paces of going back and forth, is to walk from the meditation center all the way down to the main road, which at that time was about half a mile. And so that was the walking path, back and forth, back and forth. So the, sit- the walking balances the sitting practice. Sitting too excessively, given certain circumstances, uh, number one, as you know, can create a lot of physical pain and also can create a dullness. So, you know, this is why the schedule is balanced between the sitting and the walking. It's a, both a support to the sitting practice and also not separate from. So part of the effort in the, in the walking practice is to notice when the walking begins. And it begins as soon as the bell rings, before you even get up. Notice the energy of the body and notice every motion that it takes to come into the standing posture, to leave the hall and go into your walking meditation. Part of also a, um, a creative use of effort is to bring a sense of curiosity or investigation, which is one of the factors of awakening. It's hard to keep your mindfulness on something that is either boring or that you're not interested in. It helps to be curious. So, skillful means, you know, vary the speed of your walk, vary... Um, the place of your walk. There are stairs. You can actually do walking meditation up an incline or down an incline. Try to vary the circumstance if you feel that the mind is starting to get dull. Now, you don't want to keep varying it just for the sake of variation. So that's why I say skillful means. But where do you feel the walking the most in terms of um, uh, in terms of your body? And just allow the sensations to be felt from that place. Which actually gets to mindfulness. Why is mindfulness? Mindfulness is always wise when walking. January 17th, 2010, San Francisco. On the day of the collision last month, visibility was good. The sidewalk was not under repair. As she walked, Tiffany Briggs, 25, was talking to her grandmother on her cell phone, lost in conversation. Very lost. I ran into a truck, Miss Briggs said. It was parked in a driveway. How many... How many, um, you know, um, 
How many of us could that be in terms of being lost while we're walking using our technology? So we begin by noticing the details of the experience. And this is the invitation to the lifting, the moving, the touching, and the pressing, the shifting of the weight. Sometimes the labels are appropriate to use and, and always in a light way because what you're really trying to do is to focus on the sensation. And sometimes the labels aren't necessary. And you can just feel the walking from the inside out. You know, select a place in the body that you, just like the breath, whether you feel the breath in the nose or the chest or the abdomen, where do you feel the walking the most prominent? For most people, it is the soles of the feet. But it doesn't have to be. And just allow your mindfulness to rest in that location. <coughs> so you walk the length, whether it's 19, 20, or half a mile. And you come to the end of the path. Allow yourself to notice the turn because we often lose it. We just turn. We just want to get back to where we were going. How o- this is the metaphor of how often do we miss the transitions in our life? How often do we not want to stay with the transition of the job that we're making? We just want the new job. Or if we're having to move to another home, We just want the move to be over. Notice the transitions and the turn. In a way, um, I don't don't know if uh, some of you swim, uh, are swimmers, but when I was learning how to swim, uh, the most difficult thing for me to do was to learn how to turn in the pool because I would always breathe at the wrong time and, you know, get this, this mouthful of water. And so I had to be really conscious of how I turned. And so the invitation is to to be as conscious uh, across all, not just of the length, but also the transitions. And this can increase the concentration that you bring into your sitting practice. So going to concentration. Walking meditation can really support what we call continuity of practice. As I was was describing, the walking practice begins when the bell rings that, that ends your sitting. And there's the continuity. It begins each movement, with each movement, through um, getting up, moving up the stairs, placing your hand on the door, pushing the door open, moving out into um, your walking path. And it's a bridge to continue mindfulness into the rest of the day. Whether you're actually doing formal walking practice, or you're taking a shower, or you're eating, or standing in line. And this is where you build your mindfulness, through the the concentration of moments that are woven together. Because as Carol was saying also, the object of the concentration, the object of the mindfulness doesn't matter. It's it's the application of effort, mindfulness, and concentration in the moment that allows the unification of our energies to focus on awareness. And with awareness, comes the possibility of freedom. Because with awareness, we have that choice. When something comes into our consciousness, we have that choice of what, how do we respond? Do we move towards suffering or do we move towards freedom? If we don't know, if we're lost, in some form of distraction. We don't have that choice.
I decide to water my garden. As I turn on the hose in the driveway, I look over to my car and decide it needs washing. As I start towards the garage, I notice the mail on the porch that I brought in from the mailbox earlier, and I decide to go through the mail before I wash the car. I lay down the car keys on the table, put the junk mail in the garbage can underneath the table, and notice the can is full. So I decide to put the bills back on the table and take the garbage out first. But then I think, since I'm going to be near the mailbox when I take out the garbage, I may as well pay the bills first. I take out my checkbook and see there's only one check left. There are extra checks on, in my desk on the study, so I go inside where I find a can of Coke that I had been drinking. <laughs> I'm going to look for my checks, but first I need to push aside the Coke so I don't ac accidentally knock it over, and the Coke is getting warm, so then I decide to put it in the refrigerator. As I head towards the kitchen with a Coke, the vase of flowers on the counter catches my eye and they need water. I decide to, I decide, mm, I put the Coke on the counter and I, and I discover my reading glasses that I've been searching for all morning. I decide I'd better put them back on my desk, but first I'm going to water those flowers. I set the glasses back down on the counter, fill a container with water, and suddenly spot the TV remote. Somebody left it on the kitchen table. I realize that tonight we're going to watch TV, so I'll be looking for the remote. But I won't remember that it's on the kitchen table. So I decide to put it back in the den where it belongs, but first I'll water those flowers. I pour some water on the flowers, but it spills on the floor. So I set the remote back on the table, get some towels to wipe up the spill, then I head down to the hall trying to remember what I was planning to do. <laughs> At the end of the day, the car isn't washed, the bills aren't paid, there's a warm can of Coke sitting on the counter, the flowers don't have enough water, I still only have one check left in the checkbook, I can't find the remote, I can't find the glasses, I don't remember what I did with the car keys. <laughs> then I try to figure out why I got nothing done today, because I'm really baffled, because I'm really tired. I realize this is a serious problem. I'm going to get some help, but first I'm going to check my email. <laughs> when we're lost, we don't know we're lost. It's when we are aware that we have a choice, that there's something, that there's an alternative to the suffering. Walking also can moderate when concentration gets so tight. You know, when you get really narrow and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a striving or a narrowness to the focus of your concentration. And all of a sudden, you go out, especially into this landscape, this, this expansiveness, and you begin to walk, and you take in you take in that, that um, spaciousness and you're able to bring it back into your sitting. So really allow the walking practice to support your meditation when you're, when you're sitting. So in, in moving through the factors of the Eightfold Path into wise speech. I really want to talk about this, um, this factor not as verbal communication, but as being in relationship with yourself and the world. When I was practicing in Thailand, I learned that before they, often, before they build a temple, the monastics and the lay practitioners will do walking meditation over the land to, um, uh, you know, it, it, was a, it, it was a beautiful um, uh, process to watch because um, the belief was is that you purify the land and the land purifies the practitioners. But it felt to me so indigenous in terms of its intentions, to develop a relationship with land 
before you engage with the land. In the West, we have so many odd relationships with the earth. You know, we use it, we exploit it, we, um, we use it for materials. Uh, we think we can own it. And can we really own land? I mean, you know, the, the aspect, the, the conventional relationship of owning land is what created this whole financial mess that we're in these days. Walking is actually an invitation to realign our relationship to this earth. Tashunka Witko, who is better known as Crazy Horse, says, one does not sell the earth upon which people walk. Walking allows us to connect with this earth in his invitations to Qigong, Franz gives the instruction, give yourself into the earth. And after I, I did his sessions, I don't know about you, but I could feel the heat in my feet and my legs. So one of the practices which actually Noah mentioned is to... Um, do the practice using the four elements to break down the walking practice into the four elements of fire, air, earth, and water. Fire, you know, is what I was feeling at the end of the Qigong session, that, that energy of the muscle. And when fire comes into your experience, it lightens, allowing the muscle to lift. Air is the movement of the foot through space. Earth is the touching on the ground, the solidity of, of the contact. And water, as you shift, is that fluidity. And in the walking, as you go through this cycle, fire, air, earth, water, fire, air, earth, and water, you begin to re-experience or realign your experience with earth. We don't own it. We don't use it. We don't work it. We don't even exploit it. We are it. We don't walk on the earth. We are earth that walks. Feel that organicity of your life connected to the organicity of the life around us. We are elements placed in motion, into motion and consciousness. And we begin to see that our small idea of self is so different than the actual process of life. And we begin to get out of the way. We begin to allow this life to be lived. And just meeting it with kindness. And simply noticing the nature of things as they have come to be. reorienting our relationship to the world and earth, healing the land, healing ourselves. Buddhadasa, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was another of the Thai meditation masters of the last century, said this about, he was asked, how should Westerners practice given our particular conditioning around um, self-esteem and and our, our inner wounds. And he said, first, the whole of their spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of metta. Then they should be taken out into nature, into the beautiful forests or mountains. They must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all of life and their proper place amidst all things. 
moving into wise action of the Eightfold Path. Uh, I'll say a short piece of, this is really about when to walk and when not to walk. So there's a a particular sutta uh, in which a monk called Sona um, had done walking meditation until the skin of his soles of his feet were split and bleeding. And the Buddha, in his uh, awareness, um, came to Sona and asked, you know, is this leading to to, um, freedom? And so the instruction, the, the, the image that the Buddha offered Venerable Sona was um, like tuning a lute, uh, a musical instrument. When you tune it too tight, when you try too hard, you can't play the music. When it's too loose, when you're too passive, you also can't play the instrument. So it's, it's the middle way, it's the middle path, knowing when to, uh, when to create additional effort, when to meet your experience with compassion. And in particular, around wise action, I really want to talk about these walking invitations and instructions for when we have physical limitations or impairments in our experience. And there may be no one in the room that is experiencing this right now, or there may be some of you, but as Jack quoted George Washington Carver, someday all of us will experience some kind of impairment or disability. And what is the wise walking practice then? Because the general instructions are really trying to reach the largest number of people possible. They are not, but, but in that intention, we can't meet every single person's body type or body configuration or need. So some people might feel excluded because the range of their motion or their range of their abilities is not the same. For those of you who experience that now or may experience that in the future, what other methods are available to you to create this continuity of mindfulness? Maybe it's simply noticing the sensations of getting out of your seat, taking one step, and sitting back down. Maybe it's simply feeling the vibration of the cane or the walker or the wheelchair that you're using for support. Maybe it's sitting and creating a motion in your upper body that you can repeat over and over again. The invitation into mindfulness is not to be limited by the traditional instructions because your mindfulness has no limits. Your mindfulness has no boundaries. So allow your practice to be that expansive even if your physical situation changes. At East Bay, we're developing an... an, um, a new sangha, a new sitting group called Everybody, Every Mind, in which we're um, trying to figure out how these invitations and instructions and teachings land on people who have physical and mental differences in their experience so that these teachings can really um, be impacted in communities that also need them. story about walking and livelihood. As a young 26-year-old African-American man, John Francis witnessed a tanker collision and oil spill in San Francisco Bay in 1971. It was then that he gave up the use of all motorized vehicles and began to walk. 
and to work towards transforming an oil petroleum-based economy. Several months later, fed up with the arguments of its decision to walk with people around him, he decided to take a vow of silence. And this vow lasted 17 years. During that time, he not only only walked, but he, and, and in silence, he founded um, a nonprofit organization called Planet Walk, devoted to environmental awareness. He received a BS degree, a master's degree, and a PhD in land resources. Francis started speaking again on Earth Day in 1990. That very day, he was struck by a car. He refused to ride in an ambulance, insisting to walk, in the, uh, to, walk to the hospital. For 22 years, he walked over 20,000 miles, including treks across the entire United States, much of South America, hoping insp to inspire others to change the petroleum economy. On Earth Day 2005, he began a walk retracing his route across the United States. His goal is to redefine environmental problems we face into an inclusive concept and to form partnerships among native and non-native people, cultures, businesses, and organizations who traditionally feel they do not share the same objectives and values of the mainstream environmental movement. His walking practice led to a livelihood which not only transformed his life, but transforms the world around us. I hope you're still with me by feeling that walking is not a secondary practice. It may not be such an elevated topic for a Dharma talk, but it is a glorious practice. And now we come to the wisdom factors. Wise intention. The practice of intention is so important in our experience. What's said is, is that our whole experience lies on the tip of the sort of intention, balancing. And so you can feel this um, in, in any action that happens. For example, if I give you a gift, that action has some impact on you, but I could be giving you the gift for so many different intentions. I could be giving you the gift just out of an unconditional uh, wanting to be generous. Or I actually could give you the gift because I want something from you. Or I could want to give you the gift because I just want you to leave me alone. Three completely different kinds of experience, even though the action is the same. So allowing yourself to notice the intentions in your walking practice. The intention for each moment, the intention for each action, comes before the action itself. The intention to lift, lifting. The intention to move, moving. The intention to place, placing. The intention to shift, shifting. And it sounds a little, again, mechanical. But how often have we gotten ourselves into a situation, you know, in the complexity of our life, and then said, how did we get here? What happened? And it's because we, we are not that aware of our intentions behind our actions. So this is, again, practice to notice our intentions before the actions. And you can actually get so concentrated that you realize that you cannot move that foot without intending to. And the more you become familiar with intention, the more you are familiar with the choice point of whether you're intending to move towards suffering or away from it. And the last factor is wise view, wise understanding. 
And all of the Eightfold Path really creates this fertile ground for insight to arise. That, that awakening begins to happen. Walking really expands the possibility of practice to see more clearly what the landscape of our life really is. Who we are beyond what we think. We can't really predict when insight is going to arise. But we have faith that it does. And in the scriptures there are many stories of, of um, people becoming fully awake through walking meditation. And even in the meetings that we're having with you, you're sharing insight. These are moments of freedom that happen during your walking meditation. So the one that I'll share is um, at Spirit Rock, um, we do um, many retreats that are for culturally specific communities. Women's retreats, retreats for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community, um, for young people, and for communities of color. And at one of the people of color retreats, um, for the walking meditation practice, um, I offered uh, the Zen form of walking meditation, Kinhin, which is a mindful walking um, in a line. It's a communal practice. So you actually have to be aware not only of your internal experience of walking, but of the people around you because you have to maintain a certain space. Uh, otherwise, you're just knocking into people. And you walk in a line and you walk mindfully. And what we did was we walked out of the meditation hall and um, this is maybe 84, 85 people of color, up the hill behind Spirit Rock. And we opened up into this beautiful landscape and curled back down the hill, back into a spiral in front of the, the patio of the um, meditation hall, and then bowed to each other. It took about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And afterwards, um, a woman of color who was of mixed race came to me and said, um, um, what was your intention behind that practice? And so I said, I just wanted to offer a different form of the walking practice to main pe maintain people's interest. And also, it was such a nice day, I wanted to get people out into the expansiveness of how beautiful this landscape is. And she turned to me and she said, well, you know, when you get people of color or people of, of, um, uh, who have had the same cultural marginalization in a line, you have a different experience. And so she began to describe to me her initial response to the walking meditation brought up the trail of tears. It brought up the door into the African diaspora. It brought up the lines into the, um, uh, the camp at Manzanar and the lines at Angel Island. And I could feel the contraction in my, uh, my chest and my body. And I, th I was thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you know, there was... Uh, I had unwittingly or unconsciously um, re-traumatized a, a, a wound in this, in this person. And she was describing this experience and then she said, and then it changed. Because I realized none of that was here. And it all began to fall away. And I was in this landscape and it shifted her experience with cultural identity, her experience of, of suffering in that, in that identification. Maybe not, you know, for, uh, it, it may not have relieved oppression completely, but those moments of freedom are so important to recognize. And each of us, 
suffer in different ways. Just noticing when we can be fully present for what is actually happening as opposed to what we are thinking is happening. One last metaphor around walking practice. That this practice builds on itself. It is an incremental practice just like any other part of your mindfulness practice. Transformation happens step by step. Dr. Martin Luther King says, take the first step in faith. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. And this is why patience and determination are part of are the paramis, is because transformation, whether it's personal, interpersonal, or social, always takes time. Sometimes it takes a lot longer than we would prefer. About 20 years ago, I came out as a gay man to my parents, and it has been a really long walk for us. Um, when, we, when I first came out to my mom, uh, at the time, she equated being gay with um, uh, the HIV epidemic with death. And she said, you're going to die. And we had to walk through that. About, and then Stephen came into my life, and about eight years ago, we had a commitment ceremony before it was legal to get married and then illegal to get married. So we uh, had a commitment ceremony and it was a struggle for my mother to be there. And uh, we had to walk through that. She actually wore gray and black, (laughs) which are documented in our photographs. And so we had to walk through that. And last year, you know, it was really hard because um, there was that 15-year-old young man in Indiana that hung himself. And very shortly afterwards, um, the Rutgers student, Tyler Clemente, suicided off the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was in the news a lot. And I was sitting with my mom uh, watching the evening news and she turned to me and she she asked me, were you ever bullied? And I froze for a moment because what happened were these cascading memories. You know, I had been out of the closet for a really long time, but there are certain memories that I had just locked away, not particularly wanting to revisit. And all those memories came back and I froze because I didn't think that she would understand. You know, the thought was, she's not going to get this. It's not worth going there. And so I want to go back to the metaphor of the turn, of, of noticing transitions in the walking. Because in that moment, I realized that just by her asking the question, something had changed. And so I went with it. I said, yeah. I mean, it was hard, particularly between this time period. And then she said, why didn't you tell us? We would have done something. And, um, you know, that five-minute conversation shifted 50 years. And it made me realize It is never too late to heal. It is never too late to walk through what I thought I had already walked through. Each of us have our our own description of what suffering has been in our life. Each of us have walked through that path of pain and sorrow. And each of us has created this incredibly beautiful life that you're living right now in this room. 
because if you weren't, you weren't, you wouldn't be here. Just think about it. All of us are turning towards freedom. How beautiful is that? Each of you are walking your practice so deeply. So I'm going to just end. I've already gone over time. (laughs) Can you think that there's been so much to talk about on walking meditation? And I'll just sort of take the liberty with my my lineage and and, and invoke a, a very classic Chinese saying that a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. But I think that the inverse of it is also true. That each single step has a thousand journeys. And I just hope in this retreat that you can explore some of those journeys in your walking. Many blessings on your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.